guests, we're talking about fear, anxiety, fear. And when I say fear, I don't mean like danger, which is obvious. We should all fear danger. I'm talking about that sort of underlying fear, that nagging fear that just seems to not go away, anxiety. The very first thing that we need to know about fear is that it's never from God. Never from God. And I'm getting a prompt here, a little ping from the Holy Spirit. So let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you. Holy Spirit, we expect you. St. Michael, defend us. St. Gabriel, bring us God's word. St. Raphael, bring us God's healing. Come Holy Spirit. Under the mantle of Our Lady, through the Sacred Heart, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so it's not from God. Fear is never from God. That's the very first thing that we should always know when we're confronting, especially anxiety, um, but that underlying kind of rumbling fear in the background. The scriptures say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So first of all, there's a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear, and it's not from God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a, a spirit of power and love and self-control. So the very first thing to know is when we're battling fear, it's not from God. It's from the enemy. So we have to know that that's the enemy. It's not the stuff going on outside or the, the relationship issue or whatever it is that's got us afraid. That's not the real issue. It's the temptation of the enemy who tries to trap us in that fear so that we are paralyzed. And there are three ways that he does that. First of all, um, there's the rule of first use. I believe it was Augustine. It was either Augustine or, or St. Jerome. I can't remember. But the, the rule of first use is if you want to know how the Bible intends a word to be used and what it means, you go back to the first time it's used. And the very first time we see fear is in the Garden of Eden. As soon as they sin, they experience Fear And along with that fear comes shame, which I wish I had time to even talk about that, the shame and the guilt thing, because those are not actually not from God either. God sin, he gives us contrition, but it's not loaded with all this guilt and shame. All right. That's, that's also from the enemy. But fear comes along with that. Fear comes from the enemy. And the, the first doorway is sin. Now, sin is one of those words, and I'm, I'm speaking just scripturally here, right? So sin is one of those words. It's, it's called a transliteration. It's lifted completely from the old language and brought into the English, right? And it just means, it means a lot of things. I don't know about how you guys were taught about sin, but as a Baptist, we were taught that sin was like a black mark on the soul. Everything you did that was a sin, you get a black mark, right? And bless Jesus, he takes his miraculous eraser and erases all the black marks to your Sin and your soul is all white and pure. Well, that, there's truth to that. But the real, the actual meaning of the word sin includes a lot of things. It means to miss the mark. This was the definition that I was given. So imagine a bullseye and the center is the mark that you're trying to hit. And a sin is a miss. You miss it by a little or a lot. 
But I'll be honest, that was not a, a definition that resonated with me. I was like, well, everybody messes up. What's the point in trying to hit the bullseye? It's a mistake. I couldn't help it, right? So it, it's not a good full definition. It doesn't give us the, the full picture of why we shouldn't sin. The rest of the definition, though, helps with that. So a mistake, to lack, to miss the mark. But here's the kicker, the big one, to forfeit. When you sin, you forfeit something. Part of it is peace. The opposite of peace is fear. So when we sin, we forfeit our peace. We open the door to the enemy to attack us in that fear. There is that underlying, we know when we're in a habit of sin and, and we're battling it, and, or maybe we're just not even battling it. We just know it's there and oh my goodness, everybody has their thing, right? But what are you forfeiting? What do you forfeit when you sin? One of those things is peace. And ultimately, we could forfeit eternal life altogether. But eternal life is a, a whole idea as well. In the scriptures, you know, I don't know about you, but I was taught, I mean, I'm thinking eternal is like all the way in the past eternity and all the way in the future eternity, like a timeline, eternal. But that's actually not what the biblical definition is. Eternal life in the scriptures is a quality. It's a quality of life. It's God's own life. So try to imagine what does God's quality of life look like? Is he fulfilled? Is he at peace? Does he have purpose? Is he happy? Joyful? Loving? What does eternal life as a quality what does that look like what does that look like for us what kind of life is the fullest possible quality you can imagine and that's what you forfeit when you sin and a lot of that is included in peace we forfeit peace when we sin so sin then we see in the garden of eden is the first time we see fear enter into the picture. And it's because sin has entered in. They have forfeited their peace. And ultimately, they have forfeited that eternal life. All right, so sin is the first way that the enemy instills and tempts and establishes fear in our lives. When we're in a state of sin or in a habit of sin, there's this underlying lack of peace, right? Until we get to confession, but especially until we repent. And the word repent simply means we're headed in one direction and we repent. That means to change direction and go the opposite way. That's all it means, to change direction. So it's not this weeping and gnashing of teeth and all this emotional stuff. It just means to stop and change direction. And when that happens, your peace is restored, right? So sin then is the first way that the enemy uses to keep us in fear. But there's another way. Woundedness. Because all of our sin comes out of woundedness. Wounded emotions. When we are wounded, we're afraid to love, 
fully and be loved fully. We're afraid. We're afraid to show people who we really are. And if we can't show people who we really are, then we can't really love them and they can't really love us. And to be perfectly honest, we learn pretty early that most people aren't safe. It's not safe to actually be who you are with a lot of people. So where are we supposed to be who we really are? With God, right? So woundedness then is the second way, both your woundedness, but their woundedness. People wound one another because they're wounded. Hurt people hurt people. You've heard that probably, right? We do the same thing, all of us, all of it. We don't even mean to, but we perpetuate the woundedness that has been inflicted on us. So woundedness comes from sin. The sins that you commit, but the sins that are committed against you. And so the enemy uses the sins that are committed against you to keep you in fear. In fear of other people. And sometimes that's practical, but sometimes it's just not. Sometimes we have walls up that are artificial, but it's because of woundedness. Sin causes woundedness. And woundedness is a, it just automatically produces fear. So you can see the relationship then between sin, woundedness, and fear. All right? And the enemy uses those tactics to keep us locked in fear. Fear never comes from God. I, I'm not even halfway into my verse yet. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Before you leave tonight, you will know this verse by heart. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear. He has given you a spirit of power and love and self-control. Self-control. Praise God, we need that, right? So... Three ways so far. Anxiety, I'm sorry, sin. Sin brings that fear. But fear is, we have two, two uh, types, we'll, we'll say, of fear. So anxiety is fear of the future. Depression is fear of the past. Both of those are types of fear. And so you can see how that relationship between fear and sin and woundedness, right? So types of fear. Um, Woundedness, here's one of the areas. Um, when we're wounded, when we're sinned against, that creates a sense of, well, there are lots of core wounds. I don't know, has anybody ever heard the term core wound? What's your core wound? For, for a little while, that had started to be sort of a, a fad. But the Bible doesn't talk about separate core wounds, powerlessness, um, helplessness, it doesn't separate things. What it talks about is worthlessness. I have what I call a father wound. My dad was military in several branches, and then he was a cop. So if we knew anything at our house, it was the law. And what happens when you transgress the law? So I was, I was afraid of him because he was... He wanted to be. He wanted me afraid of him. He wanted all of us afraid of him, right? That's why he became a policeman, to be honest. Um, but he, 
instilled a very deep, very raw wound in me. And the wound came down to worthlessness. Dad asked me, so his brother died, my uncle, which we were never close to any of the people in in his side of the family at all. They were always fighting with each other, right? Y'all got families like that where somebody's always not talking to somebody else. Well, our family was that way, still is to this day. But my uncle died, didn't know him very well, but we traveled to go to the funeral. And my dad didn't come to my wedding. And as a punishment to me, he didn't come to my wedding. And so this was like one of the first times I had seen him since that happened. And we traveled, my sister and I, we traveled to the funeral and my dad asked me to his hotel room. He wanted to talk to me. And I mean, I was, I was scared to death because <laughs> I knew how that always ended up. I was going to end up crying and then I was going to be pissed off. So I was afraid to even go in there because who knows what he's going to say, right? So he asked me into the hotel room and, and we're, I don't know how we ended up in the bathroom, but we were in the bathroom and he was sitting on the, the toilet seat and I was sitting on the edge of the tub and our knees were touching. We were that close. He was so close. I could smell his cologne and he had either brushed his teeth or just had a breath mint because I could smell the minty freshness, right? He was that close to me and he took me by the hand. Now this is scary, dad, right? He took me by the hand and he said, I just want you to know I'm sorry I didn't come to your wedding. I was totally speechless. My dad doesn't apologize for anything. And to be fair, it was a blanket apology, right? Which really wasn't apologizing for anything. But but I was grateful to have it. I had never even heard such come out of his mouth, you know? Something sort of just clicked in my world, and I thought, wow, okay. I left that funeral, went home, and picked the biggest fight that my husband and I had ever had. I was depressed. I was irritable. I wanted to sleep all the time. I cried all the time. For two weeks, I could not figure out what was wrong with me. And I went to God in the, in the scriptures because I have, I have always had a, a daily practice in the scriptures, which you really need. You really, really need. And this is part of why. I was, I was both teaching a Bible study at the time, and I was in a Bible study at the time. The Bible study that I was in was on wellness in your heart and soul and mind and body. And... I learned about something called historical emotions, where a historical emotion is an emotion that you have felt over and over and over again in the past. And when you get into a similar situation later on, you immediately react out of that historical emotion. And the the reaction is exaggerated. The emotion is exaggerated. It doesn't even really make sense because the key is not in the present. It's actually in the past. And you have felt that emotion so often that it's an immediate trigger. And I was learning about that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I wonder if that's what's going on here. And I'm trying to figure out when when did this start? And it was at that funeral. And I remember I was writing in my journal after, you know, a couple of days of, of just 
this terrible depression, fear of the past, right? And anxiety because I couldn't figure out what was going on, what was wrong with me. And I remember writing my journal. I had cried so hard and so much. I had just carved it in the, the paper and the, my tears had made a mess on the page. But I, I wrote, I, I, I wrote, I feel so worthless. I feel so worthless. At the same time, I was teaching a study. And I ran across this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And I thought, what's Belial? So did anybody here bring a Bible? Of course not. We're Catholic. <laughs> Belial is a proper name. It's capitalized. If you look at it in the scriptures, that's exactly what drew my attention. I thought, what is that? And I know after studying the scriptures for so long that names mean things. They're not just a title that somebody has hung on you. They actually mean something. They mean something about the character of, of a person or a place or a thing. So I looked it up. And Belial is a proper name for Satan. What communion has Christ with Belial? What this word means oneness, fellowship, relationship, union. What communion has Christ with Belial or Christ with the enemy or Christ with Satan? But when I looked up what the word Belial meant, it means worthless. What communion has Christ with worthlessness? None. None. Worthlessness is an attack of the enemy to keep you locked in fear, to make you afraid to love, especially to love God and to be loved, to keep you locked in fear of stepping out of sin and into the peace and the eternal life that God has for you. Worthlessness is the core wound. It's not all the other stuff we hear about. It's worthlessness. Sin that is sinned against us makes us feel worthless. And when I was trying to remember, where did this start? It was that funeral. My dad looked at me and he said, you know, I'm sorry that I didn't come to your wedding, but you were so young and I just knew you could be somebody and I was afraid that you were just throwing your life away. And when I went back and was remembering that, I was like, oh my gosh, of course. You could have been somebody, but you weren't. How often that was the message I got over and over and over again. We have this conversation. It should have been a beautiful moment, and it kind of was for about two seconds. And then I left, and I had this total meltdown. Why? Because that's the message that I got just about every day of my life with my dad. You could have been something, but you weren't. But hey, sorry I didn't come to your wedding worthlessness. When you're sinned against, especially over and over and over again, it creates a wound of worthlessness. And that is an attack of the enemy. He is accusing you of something he is. Belial is a proper name for Satan. It means worthless. So what's the point? Don't listen to that lie anymore. 
This better be the last day you ever listen to that lie that you are worthless because you cannot be. You cannot be worthless. What accord has Christ with Belial? Has Christ with worthlessness? None. None. Do not listen to that lie another day. Sin keeps us in fear. Worthlessness keeps us in fear. Unforgiveness keeps us in fear. I didn't bring, yes, I did. Praise the Lord. All right, make sure where we are. How does unforgiveness keep us in fear? Oh my gosh, y'all, this was crazy. When I learned this, I was like, oh my word. If everybody knew what forgiveness actually was, we would all be doing it. So Jesus tells this parable. Peter comes to him and says, how many times do I have to forgive? And, and he says, seven, right? He's being all generous because seven is the number of divine completion. If I forgive seven times, I have divinely completely forgiven and I am then holy. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, 70 times seven. So he multiplies that divine completion, the number of covenant with the number 10, which is the number of law. So Jesus starts to talk about the law, the divine law of forgiveness is that it be divinely complete. So it's not like a numerical, he's not giving us a, a mathematical formula here, right? But what he's saying is forgiveness, the divine law, the covenant law of God with us and us with God is that forgiveness be divinely complete. It is a law of the new covenant. And then he starts to talk about what forgiveness is. And praise the Lord. It ain't what most of us learn forgiveness is. He tells the story about an unforgiving servant. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, I'm sure you know, more than he could ever pay back in several lifetimes. A gazillion dollars. There's no way he could ever pay that back. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all he had. This is the debt we owe. Too much to pay back in multiple lifetimes. Debt that enslaves us and everybody around us. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay you at all. Not even possible, but that's what he said. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was very little. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. So the servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told the master all that had been done. And the master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. 
he delivered him to the torturers. Who are the torturers? First of all, what is forgiveness? According to this parable, forgiveness is simply the release of a debt. My father owed me unconditional love. He owed me protection. He owed me provision. He owed me understanding who God truly is and what it means to be a daughter of God. That's what he owed me. And in the end, he owed me an apology. But forgiveness says, all right, you don't owe me. You don't owe me anymore. Not an apology. None of that. I don't expect anything from you anymore. It's simply the cancellation of a debt. That's it. It's not an emotion. We're not happy that the shit hit the fan and everything was so crappy. We're not happy about it. We don't forget about it. We don't pretend we're not upset or angry about it. That would be untrue. It would be false. But we forgive what they owe. They don't owe you any more. You don't owe God. He has forgiven your debt completely. Now, out of love, we feel like we owe him everything. And, and ultimately, I guess we do. But he doesn't hold it over our heads. He doesn't expect we, when we actually forgive, notice what happens. He says his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. The torturers, the enemy. Unforgiveness is demonic torture. It creates fear. Unforgiveness locks you in fear and anxiety. I bet you've never considered that Anxiety and fear comes in part from unforgiveness, but it does. Demonic torture. And it's not an emotion. It's simply the cancellation of a debt. That's it. So it's, we don't have to pretend that everything's okay. I'm never going to say to my dad, hey, that, that's fine. I'm not going to say that, but I'm not going to hold it over his head either. I don't expect anything from him. I know he can't give it to me. He doesn't have it to give me. I understand that now. But forgiveness is an attack, or a, a unforgiveness is an attack of the enemy. It locks you in fear. So see how these three things work together. Sin causes woundedness out of which we sin, which causes more woundedness which makes us feel worthless. And then we hang on to unforgiveness, if not for the other people, for ourselves. Mm. I see people one-on-one, -on -one, twice a week, all day long. And most people don't have an issue forgiving other people, but they have a big issue forgiving themselves. And all I had to say to that is, are you better than God? 
Are you going to put yourself above him? If he forgives, who are you to not forgive even yourself? Unforgiveness is demonic torture. If you are locked in unforgiveness, get thee to confession. Did you know that confession, because it's a sacrament, is more powerful than an exorcism? If you're battling anxiety and fear, God did not give you a spirit of fear. It comes from the enemy, from sin, from that feeling of worthlessness, which is an attack of the enemy, and from under unforgiveness. Get thee to confession. Get your soul exercised. Because then you can experience this spirit of power. What kind of power? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, it was the power that created the universe. Light and dark. The planets, everything, the whole cosmos. That's in Genesis 1. In John 1, we have this new creation. It comes through the word of God, the logos. The meaning, it's spiritual. The light, it says. So where we had literal cosmic light in the beginning, in the new beginning, we had the spiritual light in Christ. So creation, the power of creation, the power of true authority that can create an order. That word logos, which is when we call Jesus the word, especially out of the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word, word, in the Greek means logos, which is meaning, order. It is Christ who brings order and meaning. And that is what is light, right? So spiritual light, cosmic light, but that power that orders and brings meaning. The power of God himself. The power of God's word. He spoke it and it happened. We have to be careful what we say. When we're walking around spreading out negativity, we got to be careful. We're co-creators with God. The scriptures are actually full of that idea. We have to be careful. It's not that we can, you know, call it into being necessarily, but a, a habit of negativity breeds more negativity. You get more of it. But Thanksgiving, I don't know if you know this, but in, in um, when Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, you know, we think it's that prayer when Jesus prayed the prayer that that's what multiplied it. It wasn't. It was the Thanksgiving. It was the Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the multiplier. Thanksgiving is the thing that keeps bringing and multiplying all the goodness. It's the opposite of negativity and fear. When you're battling negativity and fear, get on your knees and thank the good Lord for all of your blessings. All of those wonderful gifts. Look for them. Did you know, this is, the, this is scientifically, this is research, brain research. 
Gratitude, which is what the secular word for Thanksgiving, right? It's just gratitude to the universe, <laughs> whereas Thanksgiving is thankful to the God who gave it to us, right? It's personal. But gratitude is the only thing that has been shown to permanently elevate your baseline happiness. Happiness is the opposite of fear and anxiety. Gratitude is the only thing that has been shown to permanently elevate your baseline happiness. Now, it takes a little time, over about 30, 40 days, but a positive habit of thanksgiving elevates your happiness. Drugs won't do that, not permanently. Anxiety meds won't do that, not permanently. Being out in nature will do it temporarily, but not permanently. But Thanksgiving does it permanently. And the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Isn't that amazing? God commands us to do the thing that's good for us. He's not doing it for himself. He doesn't say, be thankful because you better. No, be thankful because it's good for you. That power then of God's word, his authority, the meaning, the ordering. When things are chaotic, God has given you a spirit of power to reorder, to elevate your baseline happiness. You had that power from God through the Holy Spirit by virtue of your baptism and your confirmation. Is that not amazing? That's amazing. I think that's amazing. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. This is a big one, right? So there are a couple words for love in the scriptures. You've got the, the eros, which is where we get the word erotic, but we shouldn't just look at it in those terms. It's the, the feeling of love. The love feels. You got all the feels, right? So eros and then phileo, which is the friendship love, which is where we get the word Philadelphia, phileo, brotherly love. And then agape. Agape is the sacrificial, full self-donating love. In the Trinity are all three. Something's missing if we're simply sacrificing without the feeling of love. And yet, true, authentic love is sacrificial without regard for feelings. So we can truly and fully give a self-donating love without the feelings but at some point, see, the feelings follow. We get our feelings ahead. We put the feelings in the engine. The feelings aren't the engine. The will is the engine. The feelings come in the caboose. They bring up the rear. Don't let your feelings lead. You can sit and watch a movie and have your feelings go crazy, and it's not even real. It makes you scared. It makes you sad. You might cry. It's not even real. It's a movie. That's how fickle feelings are. You don't let them rule you. 
feelings go in the caboose. A spirit of power and of love, self-donating love, love that forgives. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a weird word to insert about forgiveness. It's just. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, which means he'll always do it. And it's just. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of the will. It's not an emotion. It's the cancellation of a debt. It's the right thing. In fact, it is the supreme act of justice to forgive. How do we know? Because Jesus shows us. He has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power to reorder, to bring purpose and meaning, and love, to truly forgive and be forgiven, to experience that self-donation, both from other people, but also to be able to give it in a way that there's no fear. We know the difference, right, between a boundary, a good boundary, a healthy boundary, and not. Because forgiveness, I, I thank you, Holy Spirit, I'm getting a little ping here. Forgiveness does not mean we allow people to abuse us. Absolutely not. Boundaries are of the Lord. The Ten Commandments? Boundaries are necessary as charity demands. We are not... In that same chapter, uh, I don't want to go off here on Asanyaism. In that very same chapter on forgiveness, Jesus explains to us how to establish proper boundaries. And he says this. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Now, I'll just give you a practical example. My father is dangerous. Not physically, although he was at a time. He's not physically dangerous to me now, but he is spiritually dangerous. He would ruin my marriage, my kids. He would ruin me if he could. He's just, he can't even help it. It's not, and I'm not being critical. I'm just saying he's one of those people. He's dangerous. There have to be boundaries. If he, if I give him an inch, he'll take a mile. And I don't want him destroying what I have worked so hard to build. My marriage, my children, my relationships, my faith. I don't, if, if he gets in, he'll destroy it. That's just how he is. He can't even help it. And I don't let him abuse me. I had to learn that because he's also my parent. And how do you honor your father and mother and still put good boundaries in place? That's hard. That is a hard wrestle, but it's necessary. We are not in charity. Charity demands that you not allow another person to abuse you or anyone else. 
abuse is sin. And if you continue to allow it, then you're complicit in their sin. Some of y'all with some really tender, passive, gentle personality and temperaments, you get run over all the time. You get run over and you get resentful. Why? Because you need a boundary. <laughs> I had the opposite problem. I was the one who needed the boundary. I had a, a rage issue. I needed the boundary. But either way, we all got to learn. But my point is, forgiveness does not mean, it does not mean that there are not boundaries. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a relationship and it doesn't mean that we're going to reconcile necessarily. It could. But when we're talking, Jesus is talking here in this chapter about brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't reconcile with someone who is not part of, let's see, how do I, how do I say this? The church has a common head, a common set of rules, a common set of beliefs. We all agree on that as Christians, right? A non-Christian does not have that. They're not operating under your rules. They don't have the same head. They don't have the same spirit. You can't expect to reconcile and have sometimes a proper, authentic love relationship with someone who's not playing by the same rules. I can't expect my father to treat me with this kind of self-donating love. I can't, and I don't. So he needs boundaries, and I need boundaries because I am protecting my peace. Peace is a gift of God. My peace I give you. My peace I leave you. When we're not having peace, we need to check for sin, worthlessness, and what was the third one? Unforgiveness. Because God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And the final thing is self-control. Self-control is of the Lord. It's of the Holy Spirit. So we have to fight the right battle. The other people are not the enemy. Oh my goodness, the homily was so good. Other people are not the issue. If you're constantly mistreated, you need a good boundary because boundaries protect you and them. It's not just about boundaries protect you and them. So we need them. We can forgive and still do it at a distance, which I had to do with my father. I, I, have, I have truly forgiven him. But that doesn't mean we're close because he's not safe. And that's okay. It doesn't mean I don't love him. I do. We just can't have the kind of relationship that I longed for. But now I have one of those with my heavenly father. Thank God. <laughs> he fills in those gaps, right? So that healing, that power and that love and that self-control is what brings about the healing of those wounds that we receive through the sin of other people and our sins that we sin out of our woundedness. 
And that's when we cease to be under the control of the enemy and fear, fear and anxiety. So we got to fight the right battle. The, the battle is the enemy. The battle is the enemy. In sin, in unforgiveness, I'm starting to get brain dead. Somebody, I hope you were listening, and woundedness. So power, love, and self-control. And that's how we start to heal. So one of the things that you can do, if you've looked in those areas of sin and woundedness, woundedness is a process of healing, right? But unforgiveness, sin and unforgiveness especially, we, those are open doors to the enemy. That's like saying to the enemy, yeah, come on in. Come on in, bring your fear, bring your anxiety. It's an invitation. So you have to shut those doors to keep the door shut so that the enemy cannot steal your peace. You have the power and the love and the self-control to protect that peace that is your gift from God. So one of the things, once those doors are closed, one of the things that you can do is stand in that power and love and self-control and say out loud, I rebuke that spirit of fear in the name of Jesus Christ. Say it out loud. I rebuke that spirit of fear in the name of Jesus Christ. You can do that for yourself. You have that authority. That's what that power means. The spirit of power, authority over yourself, over your thoughts, your emotions, and your body. You have total authority over your thoughts, your emotions, and your body. The enemy has no right over you ever because of your baptism and your confirmation in Christ. You are his child. The enemy has no claim over you unless you're in sin Unless you're sinning out of woundedness, which is a process of healing, and unless you have unforgiveness. If those doors are shut, he has no right over you. Period. So don't listen to that voice. Don't listen to that worthless voice. You're worthless. Don't you listen to that. Not another day. God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ, Son of God, for the total release, the freedom from fear and anxiety. And twice, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, release your sons and daughters from the spirit of fear and anxiety. And thrice, for the completion of all things, for the perfection of your reflection in them, I ask for the full and complete healing and release of your sons and daughters from fear and anxiety and worthlessness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.